Well, good morning. This morning, I want to talk to you out of Acts 6, verses 8 through 15. And I've titled this section, Opposition from Religious Leaders. The first six chapters of Acts recorded the birth and first local expression of the New Testament ecclesia. The seminal explanation for the inaugural events of the day of Pentecost was the prophecy from Joel concerning the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the prophecy of David concerning the resurrection and ascension of Jesus as confirming signs of the new era. That is the, time, the era of the new covenant. The key revelation was that Jesus was and is both Lord and Christ. The audience that Peter spoke to that first day was Jews committed to the scripture, many of whom were part of the dispersion and had traveled long distances to be part of the annual Jewish festival called Pentecost. In particular, the non-indigenous Jews present at Pentecost demonstrated a high regard for scripture as evidenced by their willingness to risk their safety and sacrifice financially to be in Jerusalem for the Pentecost celebration. Peter's message to the Jews at Pentecost charged the Jews with crucifying Jesus and explained that how God sovereignly used their sin to accomplish his purpose. Nevertheless, they were still responsible for their sin. The Jews responded with deep conviction. They passionately asked the apostles what they should do. Peter told them to humble themselves, repent of their sin, and believe in Jesus as both Lord and Christ. And I want to stress that, as Lord and Christ. Most today want to believe in Jesus as Savior only. They don't want to believe in him as Lord. No, he is Lord and Christ. And if they did, that is, if these first people did believe this, they would receive the forgiveness of sin and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. That is the distinctives of the new covenant. The new covenant puts the law of God in our hearts. The Holy Spirit empowers us now to obey the truth of the word of God. And we are justified before God, forgiven of our sins based on the free gift, the free gift of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to us as our sin is being imputed to Christ who paid the price for our sin. So that's what Christianity is, double imputation. This was the inauguration of the new covenant. For the first time in history, God indwelt all those who he, whom he called and empowered to obey. Obedience, obedience became a grateful response to the gift of being accepted by God, not an effort to gain acceptance. With the coming of Pentecost, Jesus began to fulfill the legacy his legacy was to build his ecclesia through his apostles who were empowered by the Holy Spirit. Today, Jesus continues to build his ecclesia by calling those whom he has chosen. The ecclesia is marked by four key practices, at least the early ecclesia, the first ecclesia was marked by these practices. First, a devotion to the apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. Persecution strengthened the ecclesia, producing unity of heart and mind. <clears throat> this unity produced gratitude expressed by an eagerness to financially support the will of God. And when there was a wrong motive, such as the case of Ananias and Sapphira, God's forbearance was lifted, revealing the profound standards expected of the community. In Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, 
The generosity of the early ecclesia was expressed to the Hellenistic Jews who were a long way from home and lacked their normal means to support themselves. At some point, however, chaos set in. The, window, the widows of the Hellenistic Jews were being overlooked in the daily food distribution. Kingdom work is always bringing order out of chaos and was solved in this case by identifying the C4 people assigned to this ministry. This led to good fruit, not only order in the community, but also accelerated growth of the ecclesia. And in the process, the ministry to all listed vocations was confirmed. Now in Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15, Stephen, one of the men identified in the first seven verses as called to the ministry of food distribution, he was uh, he caught the attention of some of the Jews because he was performing signs and wonders, speaking powerfully about Jesus. And as with the apostles, he was opposed by some of the Jews who arrested him and charged him with crimes against Judaism. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. Now Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some members of the Freedman's Synagogue, com composed of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Sicily and Asia, and they began to argue with Stephen. But they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit, presumably the Holy Spirit, by whom he was speaking. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, so they came and seized him and took him to the Sanhedrin. They also presented false witnesses who said, this man never stopped speaking against this holy place, referring to the temple, and the law, referring to the law of Moses. For we heard him say, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And we know from other scripture that seems to intimate that his face was shining brightly and he was at peace and content. Let's break this down. Let's look at verse eight here. Uh, this section could be, be titled Work, Working in the Spirit in the food Distribution of Food. What was it like now to be full of the Holy Spirit and now have C4 to do food distribution and have been being commissioned to do that work? And undoubtedly, Stephen conducted that work. He was probably the leader of those seven appointed to that responsibility. From the prior verses, we know that Stephen was full of the spirit and wisdom. We know that before he was even commissioned to the work of food distribution, it said that of him. And then when they commissioned him, it said of him that he was full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Now in verse eight, the scripture says that he was full of grace and power. So here he is, a man full of the spirit and wisdom, full of the spirit and faith, and now after he's commissioned to do what he's called to do, he's full of grace and power. So now he performed great wonders and signs while presumably conducting food distribution and speaking. Up to this point, the leadership of the Ecclesia was the purview of the apostles. Commentator John Stott said, 
So far in this transitional book of Acts, signs and wonders have been credited by Luke only to Jesus and the apostles. But now Stephen, a man commissioned to the ministry of food distribution, performs signs and wonders like the apostles. Consequently, he received the same opposition as the apostles. So let's look at this opposition now, verses 9 and 10. Opposition arose, however, when some members of the Freedmen Synagogue, comprised of both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, they began to argue with Stephen, but they were unable to stand up against his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Stephen spoke with wisdom and in the spirit. In other words, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He was irrefutable. So the members of the Freedmen Synagogue conspired to trap him. According to John Stott, the Freedmen uh, were freed slaves and their descendants. Luke noted that they were from the islands of Crete, Alexandria and Egypt, Cilicia and Asia, which means they were part of the Jewish dispersion. They just happened to be set free. The proximity of Cilicia to Tarsus might infer that the Saul of Tarsus, that is the future apostle Paul, may have participated in this synagogue. So Paul may have been on the scene here. He may be part of this. We don't know for certain, but we know at the end of chapter seven, when Stephen is stoned, Paul was there. So I suspect Paul was probably there at this trial. So let's look at the conspiracy and the arrest. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. So they came, seized him, and took him to the Sanhedrin. That's verses, uh, chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. The conspiracy against Stephen was similar to the conspiracy against Jesus. The false witnesses claimed that Stephen blasphemed Moses and God. The false charges were used to stir up the people and religious leaders. Consequently, Stephen was arrested and taken to the Sanhedrin. And as with Jesus, he was brought before a kangaroo court and wrongly accused. So now the trial in verses 13 through 15. They also presented, that is the, uh, the, the people that opposed Stephen, presented false witnesses who said, this man never stopped speaking against this holy place and the law. And we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will, will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at him and saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen was accused of the same blasphemy as Jesus, speaking against the temple and the Mosaic law. Perhaps his teaching about Jesus as the Christ and the new covenant was twisted. In other words, Stephen probably said many things that they repeated to the Sanhedrin, but they twisted what Peter said and what he meant. Jesus did teach that in the new covenant, worship was no longer associated with the temple, no longer associated with a place. He said this when he spoke to the, the Samaritan woman, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24. Jesus also taught that he came to fulfill the law, that is the Mosaic law. The law is the basis of righteousness failed because of mankind's fallen state. In other words, the Old Testament experiment of giving mankind a law 
that if he obeyed it perfectly, he would gain right standing with God, failed not because of the law, but because of man's inability to perfectly obey the law. Man's state of total depravity. Total depravity meant, meant that there was no way, it was totally impossible for man to ever be able to fully obey the law. Now Jesus presents in the new covenant, a new basis for man to be justified before God. This too was different to the Jews, even though it was clearly revealed in scripture. You can find in the Old Testament, the explanation of the new covenant. It is there. In fact, much of what Stephen was probably doing was, was explaining how the Old Testament was fulfilled in Jesus. What you see here in the Old Testament is found in Jesus. Jesus fulfilled it. That's how the Pentecost sermon started with, with Peter in Acts 2, explaining how Jesus came in fulfillment of the Old Testament. And undoubtedly, Stephen was continuing that tradition of explaining, connecting Jesus with the Old Testament prophecy to validate that he was the Christ. And even though Stephen was on trial before the same Jews who crucified Jesus, he was unmoved by their attempt to discredit him. You would think that Stephen might have a little fear here of the situation he's in. He's before the Sanhedrin and he knows it's not gonna go well. But instead, he's at peace. And this was manifested on his face. It looked like the face of an angel. Now, what does the face of an angel look like and what does it mean? The scripture provides several examples. And here's a quote from one commentator on this point. He said, in descending from Sinai with the tablets in hand, Moses did not know that his skin on his face shone because he had been talking with God. Behold, the skin of his faith shone, Exodus 34, 29. This shining apparently was somewhat frequent at this time. Whenever Moses spoke with God on the mountain, it says in Exodus 34, 34, 35, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. Or how about another example? Also from the same commentator, consider also the face of Jesus. At the transfiguration, while Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. This is Luke 9, 29 meaning his face shone like the sun, Matthew 17, 2. And when John saw Jesus in his vision many years later, in Revelation 1, 16, it says, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. The imagery of the face of an angel intimated that Stephen was not concerned about his situation. Rather, the joy of the Lord was his strength. He was full of the spirit, wisdom, faith, grace, and power. This was expressed both in his work as a food distributor and his speaking and the wisdom and, and in the spirit. And now it's, it's, it's being displayed in front of the Sanhedrin because God is using him as an example of salt and light, which is only possible through holy living. Perhaps Peter illustrated the norm. Perhaps this is the way it should be. When a person is full of the spirit, the way we know that is they're full of wisdom, faith, grace, and power. And they're doing what they have C4 to do. If you're truly marked with the Holy Spirit in you, you will seek to do what God created you to do. You will seek to discover your C4 work. Now, let me uh, give you some, some theological think, uh, thoughts here for just a moment. 
I want to talk about persecution. Commonly today, people view being a follower of Jesus as a, a ticket to an easy life. They don't take seriously when he said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus, Jesus also said, the more you look like him, the more you'll be treated as he was treated. Notice words in John 15, 20. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Several years ago, I had lunch with a pastor and asked him about his theology of suffering. He stared at me and finally said, I don't have one. Herein is the challenge. If the Christian leaders are weak on understanding persecution, the followers will be weak. So it is today. The professing Christians of the world tend to dismiss how God works through persecution. However, the book of Acts reveals a different view. When the apostles were arrested and flogged for Jesus, they rejoiced that they had been counted worthy to suffer for him. That is really strange to us. You're arrested and flogged, you're beaten because of your testimony to Jesus and you rejoice because you're counted worthy to suffer? That's foreign thinking for us today. When Stephen was brought before the Sanhedrin and falsely accused, he certainly knew that he was probably going to suffer as the apostles did. Nevertheless, his face shined like an angel. Clearly, Stephen faced persecution and suffering with peace, joy, and contentment. This is a model for us today. The apostle Paul told his spiritual son, Timothy, all who want to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. Paul also told the Philippians, for it's been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, Philippians 1.29. Christians are no better than Jesus, who is their master. The more one looks like Jesus, the more one will be treated like Jesus. When Stephen was commissioned to the work of food distribution, he was characterized as a man full of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, and faith. Afterwards, he was characterized as a man of grace and power who performed signs and wonders and spoke irrefutably. Perhaps this is normative and should be normative for those who find and fulfill their C4 work. Stephen also had the grace and power to face persecution and suffering with such peace, joy, and contentment and gratitude that his face looked like an angel. This is the level of living largely unknown among Christians today. May the Lord grant us the ability to be full of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, and faith so that we can find fulfill our C4 work assignment and then live in grace and power so we can face persecution and suffering as Stephen did. Now, finally, a word of application. Now, I've titled this Revelation, the Key to Epistemology and the Truth about Cultural Norms. The rise of the LGBTQ plus culture is based on the assumption that the Bible, as classically understood by the Ecclesia, is irrelevant. Modernism, modern progressivism and liberalism are euphemisms for the rejection of biblical authority. This means that knowledge is no longer based on biblical revelation. Rather, mankind has chosen to base knowledge on human thought, experience, and emotions. 
Since the 17th century, one of the most significant philosophical battles has been the issue of epistemology. Does knowledge exist independent of God or not? Historically, Christians have asserted that knowledge is rooted in God. This idea emanates from texts such as Colossians chapter 2, which reads in part, this is verses 2 and 3, I want your hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that you may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ, he is the thesaurus of wisdom and knowledge. Those who oppose the Christian view of epistemology assert that knowledge exists independent of God. A common expression that reflects this presumption is knowledge is neutral. Accordingly, philosophers have offered a variety of possible alternative sources of knowledge, such as rationalism, empiricism, and emotivism, or some combination of these. The Christian worldview acknowledges that rationality, experience, and emotions can be helpful, but the seminal basis for epistemology is divine revelation, most clearly found in Scripture. This means that rationality, empiricism, and emotivism are tools that God can choose to use to convey revelation, but they are not to be used independent of Scripture. Scripture must be the foundation from which we understand our rationality, understand our experience, and understand our emotions. The predicate of the world today is that rationality, empiricism, and emotivism can produce truth independent of God. Common grace empowers mankind to discover some rudimentary truth through these means, but without grounding on the truth in divine revelation, there is little ability to see with profundity. We must have the word of God as the foundation of all knowledge. Nevertheless, the culture of today presumes the ability to reject divine revelation as the basis of knowledge and assumes the role as definer of truth and reality independent of God. There are many examples of cultural norms rooted in mankind's ungodly presumptions, such as abortion, no-fault divorce, homosexuality, and transgenderism. All of these are illustrations of epistemological conclusions disconnected from divine revelation that will, in the end, not go well. This cultural trend may last a while, but will not stand. All attempts to define knowledge independent of God will be thwarted. Only that which is based on the revelation of God from the Bible as classically understood by the ecclesia will endure. Anything else will fail. In Acts 6, Stephen faced accusers who believed scripture, but their hermeneutic rejected the revelation of Jesus as the Christ. That is the classic biblical definition of Christianity is we believe that Jesus was the Christ. The classical Christian view is based on the faith that Jesus is the Christ and the former view leads to Judaism, that is the Jews who did not believe Jesus was the Christ, that's the model of seeking acceptance with God based on human works. The latter view, that is the Christian view, is a model for acceptance with God based on divine grace, that Christ did the work that we could not do. He paid the price we could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. He paid our debt and now imputes to us his righteousness as a gift. 
classical Christianity asserts that the latter view is the only correct view, and that is the view that based on Jesus as the Christ is the only correct view. The pedestrian thinking today does not value scripture. Judaism, unlike the pedestrian thinking today, values scripture, but it rejects Jesus as the Christ. Judaism does not lead to the full truth of scripture, and certainly the pedestrian view of rejecting Christ in the scripture does not view to anything biblical at all. Only the historical Christian worldview that values scripture as understood through the revelation of Jesus as the Christ will lead to truth. Therefore, the key to epistemology and the truth about culture norms is the Christian worldview as historically understood. There is no other way. May we have grace to walk in this and to be witnesses of the truth in Jesus' name. Amen.